You're listening to Creativity Quest, hosted by me, author and writing mindset coach, Carrie Schaefer. Join me and my guests on our quest to ditch our doubts, dance with our demons, and delve into creative delight. Creativity Quest is owned and copyrighted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Now, let's get creative. Creative people, Carrie Schaefer here with a new and particularly interesting and informative edition of Creativity Quest today. We have a special guest. His name is Donald Ratner, R-A-T-T-N-E-R, just from the top, so you can find him when you go to look up his awesome book, which is called My Creative Space, How to Design Your Home to Stimulate Ideas and Spark Innovation. Hi, Donald. Thank you for being with us today. Hey, Carrie, it's a pleasure to be here with a fellow author and community of authors. Yeah, we have a whole, we have authors, we have some other creative people, just uh, this is a perfect place for you, I think. So I think so too. And, and happy birth, book birthday. This is actually a release date today for my creative space, correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. Thank you very much for that. And that is also always a fun and exciting day. So let's talk about you just a little bit. So you're an architect, and I see that you have a degree from, let's see, art history from Columbia and a master's of architecture from Princeton. And now you're engaged in this whole, what, what you're calling, or at least some of the people who've reviewed your work are calling the science and psychology of space and creativity. So I guess right off the start, I'm really fascinated by how you came to be interested in how our space in which we live and work creates, uh, affects our creative process. Yeah, well, I um, graduated from Princeton, as you said, and then I went to, you know, work in the trenches and began doing projects uh, of, a, of a variety of natures. But generally speaking, these were all called custom design, high end, high budget. I was very lucky in kind of getting into this place uh, in the business where, you know, I could do say almost anything I wanted to do, obviously with the client's permission and so forth and within the usual parameters of construction, but I essentially had a blank page and I could draw on it pretty much what I envisioned and have it built uh, thanks to these, you know, happy confluence of circumstances. So I'm merrily going along and somehow I fell in with a group of resort developers. They're kind of an interesting group. They only work with very historic properties or properties with very beautiful natural uh, landscape and terrains. In any case, one of the jobs that I got with them was to design 30 identical cottages. These were four-room cottages that were to go on the grounds of a historic spa resort, and they would basically serve as, as hotel rooms apart from the main building. And because they were all identical, uh, there was a decision made to build them modular. So, for okay, so just my first thought, and I, I'm interrupting you very briefly. I'm going to let you go okay. on. My first thought is, okay, 30 identical spaces doesn't, in my mind, lend itself to, oh, wow, creative, full canvas opportunity here. But well, clearly that, it turned into that. So. Well, yes. Now, remember, the, I still had to create the prototype. So sure. there... Uh, is your you know classic creative project? I had a problem to be solved. It had to f- 
you know, look beautiful, serve its function, all the things that a typical architectural project happens to need to do. But yes. yeah, they built them 30 times, but my work in a sense was done once I had created this product. All right. So there's still that creative element. Good point. But because they were going to be repeated, a decision was made to build a module, as I was saying. So what that means is in a factory, right, somewhere nearby the site within reasonable trucking distance, people are building these, call them boxes, I guess. They have walls and floors and ceilings. They have plumbing in the walls and electrical. All of this work is being done in a factory as a, uh, as they say, a group of boxes, think almost of Legos. And then they're being trucked to the site and dropped down on the foundations of the actual building that's going to arise on the property. So it was just this kind of jolt of uh, creative processes. This is a different idea to begin with the notion that, oh, I'm not going to build everything piece by piece on a site and everything is different. Every corner you turn around is different. We're going to build them in a factory. And we're going to bring them to the site. We're going to bolt them together, put a roof on. It's going to look like a regular building when it's all said and done, but it has this unusual history, this usual unusual means of production. So it just got me thinking about what what is creativity? And you kind of already you know, started to touch on it. Uh, are there different ways to approach what creativity means from an architectural perspective, but really more broadly? And that's what led me down this whole rabbit hole. And eventually I started to come across a lot of this research because I was, you know, kind of searching architecture, creativity, what is it? And there's all this research out there that starts to connect our built environment as well as our natural environment to the mental processing of creativity. And that's where it kind of set me off. Right. And, and it's very, it's so fascinating. I, I really, everybody, you need to see the pictures in this book, by the way. They're just absolutely, I just keep sitting here looking at it and imagining myself in these different spaces that, that are created here. Um, Donald, another question for you. Um, how has what you've learned changed your own creative process then? The, the things that you've um, explored and, and discovered and how has that changed things for you personally? Yeah, interesting question. Um, you know, I think to a large degree, I, I start in a somewhat different place than maybe I used to in the past before I was kind of aware of this. So I think it's, you know, safe to say in my profession, a lot of our focus is kind of envisioning what the end product is looking is going to look like, right? So in reality, in a book, in a picture, what have you, we kind of work towards that end. And then to some degree, uh, and our, our work stops. Our job is over. The building is occupied. People are happy. We go off and, you know, work on the next project. Now I'm much more aware of this sort of post-occupancy phase after move-in. <laughs> what happens to people? How is that building really affecting people, influencing how they think and feel and act? Is it achieving the ends we wanted in terms of the spaces, in terms of the outcomes? And that's what environmental psychology is all about. It's trying to understand what the connection is between the building and how people are shaped and changed and affected afterwards. And that starts, a, that starts the process from a different place. Yeah, and I'm my see now I'm doing the thing where my brain is going off in all different directions processing what you just said <laughs> instead of instead of thinking of the next, you know, good logical question to ask you, which which is a good thing, I I yep. think personally. There's a lot there. <laughs> as as writers, I I'm kind of just hung up on this whole environmental psychology. I um, I am a licensed mental health counselor, one of the little things about me in addition to writing novels, so I'm always fascinated by the psychology of the human brain and all of that, but I had not 
encountered this term, actually, oddly enough, environmental psychology. So I'm trying to put all those pieces together and think about what all fits into that. So, you know, I guess on the surface, what we're talking about is basically the effect of you on you of wherever you happen to be at any given moment. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, as I, as I often say, environmental psychology is kind of statement that we are where we are. And it's true, it's, uh, I don't think people are generally aware how much the environment does impact on their mental state, physical state, at any given time. Uh, but it makes a lot of sense when you think about it from an evolutionary uh, perspective, which is that, you know, back in the day uh, when the first Homo sapiens appear on the African savanna, uh, the, the, the great creative problem that they were having to solve every minute of every day is how do I survive in this environment? So our brains are very bioengineered to be super sensitive to what's going on around us because that was absolutely necessary for us to survive. And when I start to kind of reveal some of these connections to people, in, in my case, in the context of creativity, but of course it affects you know, the whole gamut of uh, human behaviors, people go, really? Uh, I didn't know that was happening because a lot of it is going on subliminally, kind of below the threshold of, con of consciousness. And yet there it is. And I think for writers in particular, um, because it's a pursuit that generally happens indoors, um, your built environment uh, can make a big difference in how you write that day or all the days. And I'm trying to make people aware, especially writers, I think it's one of the you know, absolutely core audiences I had in mind for, uh, when writing this book. Uh, I want people to be kind of aware how much they can leverage the environment to a positive end, obviously. If you know how things affect you well, then you can deliberately make certain decisions about your environment to give you, you know, uh, as, as great a boost as possibly can be obtained. Right. And I love this idea of making it deliberate because, I mean, a lot of us as writers, we sort of we kind of know without knowing <laughs> it's like exactly. it's not going well. So I'm going to pack up and go off to the coffee shop or um, I'm going to go take a walk or, you know, for me, sometimes this room isn't working for me today. I'm going to go sit in another space, but I have no idea why. And it's not a conscious decision. And so having that kind of become conscious and knowing some, some tips and some tools that, you, as you say, to leverage the, the process. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, speaking of which, then, kind of moving on, so can you share, you know, just like a couple of your favorite tips about space and creativity? Um, I can make that more specific if that would be helpful, but... Yeah, go ahead, because <laughs> oh, I, okay, uh, so... I, I have 48 to choose from, so... <laughs> but let's, thinking... let's say that I am feeling blocked. So I'm a writer, and I am just, you know, days and days that things are just not going well, and I feel like I'm banging my head against the wall and not getting anywhere. Are there some suggestions as far as what I could do to alter my space that would be, you know, cost effective and not too time intensive? Uh, well, yes. And you actually referenced one of them a moment ago, which is get out of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, which costs you nothing. Well, it might cost you something if you go down to your local coffee shop and you order right. a big latte. And I guess it would cost you the, the price of a latte. But seriously, uh, particularly when, you know, people have, are experiencing an impasse, sometimes the best thing to do is to get out of that space that you're having the impasse in 
And that can be as simple as you say, all the good things, taking a walk, uh, go to the gym, exercise, um, go down to a library or a museum, whatever surrogate creative space you might like to enjoy. Go on vacation. Um, do something to kind of get yourself out of the space. Now, the flip side of that is uh, the very first, what I call tactics. These are techniques for boosting creativity vis-a-vis -vis the environment. The very first tactic I talk about is you should have a dedicated creative space to begin with, um, which is somewhere you go to when you do your creative work again and again and again. Because what happens is a kind of classical conditioning, right? Like Pavlov's dogs. Uh, you know, where he, uh, the scientist Pavlov fed his dogs every day and then he rang a bell at the same time and he kept doing this food bell, food bell to the point where he could just ring the bell and the dogs would come running and be salivating because of this conditioning, this repetition of habitual behavior created that association in their mind. So the same with creative space. If you have a place you go to, it's set up for that work. Uh, by going there day in and day out, you associate being in that space with creativity and you automatically or, or very reflexively enter into a creative state. But if things are going badly, break away from it, take a new perspective. It is also one of the paradoxes of creative thinking that sometimes the best uh, approach, strategy for getting a good idea is to stop trying to have one. Right. <laughs> because, uh, what happens is that a lot of creativity is really happening below the threshold, subliminally. Yes, of course, we have to do things consciously, deliberately, with effort, but so much creativity, so much of the process really wants to happen in back of mind when you're unconscious, subconscious, asleep, nag uh, napping, half groggy, half zoned, or doing things that are totally mindless. Because when you do things totally mindless, that's lowering the drain on your sort of conscious uh, alert state and giving a lot of room to that back of mind. So that's why we get, for example, lots of good ideas in the shower because we're doing something, we're soaping up, we're lathering, we've done it a thousand times. It's, automatically, it's automatic behavior, it's very habitual. We don't have to devote a lot of conscious thinking to it. And that's why the back of mind opens up and you get all these idea collisions and things bubbling to the surface that have been kind of suppressed back there by the need to maintain conscious alertness. Right. And I, I love that you brought all these things up in the book. I do have to say, I, I have a the shower is my very best idea space. Um, closely followed it, followed by mowing the lawn, weirdly. <laughs> so those two things. But I love how you included in your book <laughs> the shower and uh, the groggy space and the having a nap and um, actually also coffee and having a drink also pop up in the book. So th that's all yeah. good news for writers. We like those things. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So I laugh about Pavlov's dog. We have, we have a, a situation at home right now where my, uh, my Viking, when he gets up in the morning, he sits down and starts doing things on his computer. And the minute he closes his laptop, the dog gets up and comes running over. Wow. <laughs> he yeah. knows it's breakfast time. Interesting. <laughs> like, there you go. So yeah, love dogs. The, the Pavlov thing. <laughs> and I guess that's, it's a good thing to remember that we as writers are, are Pavlovian. Um, also, I mean, we all do that. So having that designated space is a great idea. Um, of course, the next question being, what should our designated creative space look like? And, and I noticed that in your book, one of the biggest mistakes that you mentioned is that idea of that we should just be facing a blank wall in order to um, sort of shut out distractions and all of that. So do you right. 
care to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think if I had to pick one, that is probably what I would call a mistake or a less optimal situation that's most prevalent and not just amongst writers, but, you know, people uh, in general. So, yeah, two things going on there. So if you have your desk or work surface butted against a wall, as as many folks do, there's two things maybe that are sort of working against the idea of optimal creative performance. One is that you almost by definition, have your back to the space, to a space behind you. So this brings up a concept called prospect refuge theory. So this is, again, going back to our sort of cave people cells. So what prospect refuge says is, look, uh, nature bioengineered, again, the earliest homo sapiens, uh, to uh, seek out habitats, habitat selection, to seek out places to live, that afford maximum prospect, meaning view, that you can see, say, let's say, 180-degree sweep in front of you, because that's pretty much where your, your head can you know, swivel from one side to the other. At the same time, that habitat wants to protect you, to give you some refuge, safe harbor on your sides, your flanks, behind you and above from attack, whether it's a you know, wild animal or a hostile tribe. And when we turn our back to the, uh, the space, in a sense, we're exposing our back to potential uh, harm. Now, you know, the reality is, of course, in modern life, that's not a real threat. But here's the thing, because evolution moves so darn slowly, and we've only been spending uh, 90% of our time indoors, uh, as of the last few hundred years, our brains haven't caught up to the fact that we're not on the African savanna anymore. And so it's very subliminally, our stress levels go up ever so slightly. And stress is kind of the number one enemy uh, in terms of body processes to creativity because stress makes us more alert with the goal being to preserve ourselves, to protect ourselves from harm. That's, that's one aspect. The other one is that your physical space, your perception of the space is diminished because you're looking at a wall 24 inches away or however deep your work surface is. Now, there are a number of tactics in the book that talk about the ultimate goal being to give yourself as much of a sense of space, of expansiveness, of dimension, of openness as possible in your workspace. So that could be when, uh, when you turn that desk around, now you're looking into the space. You're doing what I call facing your space, which automatically gives you a greater sense of this sense of surroundings and room. And of course, if you have a window and you can access views out, if you have ceilings of a fairly tall nature, and they've done all this you know, research on these very factors, the, the recurring theme is the more open your sense of space is, the more open your mind is, the more open you are to new ideas, new experiences, new ways of looking at things. And that is, of course, part and parcel of creativity. And that is absolutely fascinating. I, I knew the thing. It's interesting because I know it and I'm not always doing it um, about not liking to have open space behind us. Um, and yet I'm just thinking my desk at home is <laughs> right up against the wall because that seemed to make sense at the time. And I may, I may go home and revisit. I may go home and revisit that here shortly. Exactly. exactly. Um, what, about, what about colors? Yes, color definitely plays in. So there are two colors in particular that come up in the course of the book. One of them is blue and the other is green. These are both, according to the research, um, stimulants for creativity. And I think certainly in the case of green, you can probably intuit automatically it's uh, probably the result of an association with nature. And that's another one of these themes that run through uh, various techniques in the book, which is that... 
Uh, I'll just keep saying it, you know, it keeps getting back to our cave people days since we, uh, you know, grew up, so to speak, as a species in a purely natural environment. There was no other for 190 or 80,000 years. Um, we are very attuned to being in nature. And the moment we come indoors, we start to kind of lose that connection because, you know, let's say you live in a high-rise apartment in New York City, as I used to. Um, there's very little nature potentially evident in your immediate surroundings or even outside. And what they find is that as you're losing that stimulus, your, your health diminishes, and there's lots of studies on that. To some degree, your happiness and your creativity all tend to go into a decline. In fact, all three of those factors are interesting because they all operate on the same spectrum. What helps one tends to help the other and vice versa. So um, that green, just by virtue of an association, is kind of perking you up because it signals life. It signals creativity in, in, in the natural, most natural sense of the word. It signals sustenance, nourishment, the possibility of food, and so on and so forth. So that stress level goes back down and you become more happy, more relaxed. When you become happier and more relaxed, you become more creative because you're more willing to take risks, to go places that you might not otherwise do, to be exploratory, all that good stuff that you want to do when you're trying to drum up good ideas. So, and, and then one of the other things you did mention in the book, directly connected to that, is the idea of bringing in nature as much as possible into your space. Absolutely. And, you know, lots of different ways to do that. If you, as I'm very fortunate to do, live in a place where there's a, there is a lot of surrounding nature, then obviously having access to windows and openings or even sometimes going outside is a simple and easy way to do it. But if you don't, you know what? Just by putting a plant on your work surface, according to the research, can boost idea generation as much as 15%. Uh, even putting up, and this is also an important point to make, even putting up a picture, a print, a botanic print, or a landscape, or a painting of a landscape, our minds will actually respond to metaphorical uh, representations of some of these real-life environmental cues just as well as to the real thing. So if you say, well, I don't, you know, I don't have a million-dollar view of a beautiful mountainscape or landscape, well, if you put up a poster even of a landscape, that stimuli will trigger the same kind of results as if you were looking out a window at an actual landscape. Wow. That is absolutely fascinating. 50, you said 15% increase with a plant? 15%, according to the research, yes. Yeah, I wonder if that would be true. Uh, I do have a couple plants that I've not managed to kill that I'm looking at right now. I was going to say, I don't know if someone water, like me, it's kind of like a stressor because, you know, I, I am a plant killer. It's known. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been known to, to wreak havoc myself. Um, Cactus, I guess, still counts, right? So you don't have to water yeah, them. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Fortunately, I live where I, everywhere I look, I have trees pretty much okay. out of all my windows. So I'm very blessed with that. Um, yeah, I try not to. I'm, I've been called the Dr. Kevorkian of the plant world. <laughs> Poor plants. Sadly, well, pretty true. Um, that, that's why you want to just get yourself a nice poster or print <laughs> or landscape painting because you can't do much to kill it right, once it's right. up on the wall. Right. And th that will decrease the anxiety. So um, we, one more thing, I do have to bring this up. This is one that I believe is going to be bad news for my fellow writers out there. And that was something that you wrote about the idea of actually getting dressed for work and that pajamas might not be your best creative alternative. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? 
I will break the bad news to folks. So, um, yes. So we writers, um, I think fairly safe to say, certainly on the fiction end, are very often working at home uh, as are, you know, uh, certainly other creative professionals. But when we do that, we get the sense, oh, well, you know, I don't have any meetings today, so I'm just going to sit around in my jammies and crank away at my work. Isn't this great? This is one of the bennies of working at home. Well, of course you can do that. Um, but you might want to just listen to some research here because there is the idea that when you dress up a little bit more, um, you're creating something called social distancing. So for imagine yourself, you're out just in the world and you come up to somebody and they're wearing a three-piece suit, for example and you're kind of in your Bermuda shorts and a t-shirt and so forth. Well, you're, you're, however subliminal this may be, your sense of apartness in terms of social status with that person wearing the three-piece suit uh, is greater than if they were kind of dressed up in shorts and a t-shirt themselves and wearing flip-flops because you have a greater sense of approachability when somebody is kind of that, dressed at that kind of casual level. So this goes back again to what I was talking about, about spatial expansiveness. So... Uh, again, in kind of a metaphorical sense, your sense of social distance triggers, again, that sense of expansiveness as if you were in a large space. Whereas if you feel like, oh, you're very approachable uh, because you're casually dressed, you're shrinking that social space and therefore your mental space, your idea space, and you tend to shift more into an analytical mindset, what you know, we generally call left brain thinking, which is sort of the antithesis or the opposite of creative thinking. So this is the research. Now, listen, I, I got to make a point about all of these techniques. At the end of the day, uh, it's only about what works for you. So I have 48 techniques in this book, and you may find half of them, yeah, I don't do that. For example, I'm a night owl, uh, as opposed to what the general research says, it's that we are optimal in our creative thinking capacity from, say, nine to one, sort of the morning hours, but you are a night owl. Well, then just chuck that one out and continue being a night owl. It's finding what works for you. And if it's pajamas, that's fine. But if you can adopt some of these, you may find some improvements uh, as a result. Well, and that is a really a perfect note for us to end on, um, because that is something I am always really big on is figure out your process, trust that, go with what works for you. But it's also, you know, exploration and experimentation are some of my favorite creativity generators. So just the whole idea of looking at all of these principles and playing with them, you know, let's test it out. Let's see what works and um, exactly what, what might enhance our own creativity. So exactly. you guys, um, since you're at home, you cannot see the book. So I'm going to tell you again, it's called My Creative Space. How to Design Your Home to Stimulate Ideas and Spark Innovation. And I'm telling you, even if um, <laughs> the only reason that you would want this book would be to look at beautiful places that you might want to put some of your characters in, <laughs> which for me, not being of an architectural mindset, I'm always struggling with all of my characters live in houses that look the same. Um, there's beautiful, beautiful pictures in here. The ideas are fantastic. It's nicely written. It's just a lovely book. A beautiful uh, coffee table book, actually, in many ways, with valuable information. You can find out more about Donald at his website, which is donaldratner.com. And that's Donald spelled Donald, D-O-N-A-L-D-R-A-T-T-N-E-R.com. 
you should look that up. You should go find this book because I think that there would be something in here for whoever you are and wherever you're at. And thank you again so much, Donald. You've given me actually a lot to think about, and I'm going to start doing some experimenting. Wonderful. Thank you, Carrie. It's been fun. All right. Well, take care. Best of luck with the book. And for those of you who are listening, go do something creative.